thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientists with me, Ben Valsler. This week, we're bringing you the highlights from Researchers Revealed. This was an event held in the Great North Museum in Newcastle-upon-Tyne as part of European Researchers' Night. Not only was this the first time that the UK has been involved with Researchers' Night, but it was a spectacular start. The evening saw live science demos on stage from our own Dave Ansell, also live science comedy and music with the punk scientists. Brainiac's John Tickle was discussing the physics of custard. Fashion designer Helen Story was explaining her science-inspired design. And a whole room chock full of Durham University researchers were eager to share their research with everybody who came. So coming up, we'll be hearing about the Great North Museum itself and why a collection of My Little Ponies might be just as important as a tea. Rex. We explore the murder mystery story behind the Lindau man and find out how geologists are helping to stop floods. Plus, observant listeners may have noticed that Chris Smith has been absent from the show for the last couple of weeks. He's actually been on the other side of the world in Australia, and he'll join us with the latest science news and tales of blood-red skies in Sydney. That's all to come on today's Naked Scientists, but if you want to get in touch with any questions or any comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is chris at thenakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientists podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. So, it's time to welcome back Dr Chris. Chris, it's nice to have you back. Oh, it's fantastic to be back, although somewhat <laughs> jet-lagged after a slightly trying 36 hours in the air. So oh, 36 are. hours. I'm not at all surprised. There were two but... Thursdays last week, but I'm getting over it. <laughs> well, you can't complain at gaining an extra day, I'm sure. Now, we're, we're going to find out where you've been and what you've been up to in just a minute. But first, what was it that caught your eye in the science news this week? Well, one story which I think is quite telling was an item which is published in the journal PNAS this week and it looks at the question of alcohol and alcohol abuse because for a long time we've known that people who abuse alcohol tend to be very bad at making decisions and particularly gambling type decisions, weighing up options. Should I take the gamble and go for a big, a big possible win or should I take a surefire smaller win? The big question, though, was do people who are prone to drink too much, are they just also prone to make bad decisions or does the alcohol make them more prone to make bad decisions? So a group of researchers over at the University of Washington in Seattle, this is Nicholas Nasrallah and his colleagues, decided to set out to answer that question. Now, they've done this in rats because obviously it would be rather unethical to try and use human teenagers, which is what they're interested in trying to understand, the effect of alcohol on the developing brain. But rats are actually a very good model for how human brains make decisions. The only slight snag is that, unlike teenagers, you can't get teenage rats 
to want to drink too much, which is rather surprising. But they found a way around the problem. What they did was to develop the rodent equivalent of vodka jelly. <laughs> and these rats will imbibe, and they can get sustained high intake of, of alcohol over a period of time in these rats. And after they've given the, these uh, adolescent rats uh, this, this um, alcohol-impregnated gel for a period of time, they then start giving them a gambling task to do. So what the rodents do is they're made slightly hungry, so they want to participate in the research, which involves giving them food rewards. And they offer them a choice. The first choice is they can have a small outcome, two food pellets, but they'll definitely get it. Alternatively, they could have a high-risk gamble, and they may get four food pellets, but the more times that they do the trial, the less and less likely they are to get those four food pellets. Now, if you do this with normal animals that have not been exposed to alcohol, they quite quickly cotton on to the fact that they might do quite well to start with, but later it's much better to take the surefire win situation because you're going to get something, you're not going to get left with nothing. But these rats that have been exposed to alcohol consistently, time after time, made the wrong decision. They couldn't learn that if they kept taking the gamble, it was going to have a bad outcome. And they kept going for the high-risk outcome, and they in the end became croppers as a result. Now, this isn't just because they were drinking alcohol at the time. This was in some cases up to three months after the exposure to the alcohol had stopped. And so the researchers are saying, well, perhaps the alcohol is in some way affecting the way in which the teenage, the adolescent brain, is wiring itself up. Maybe it's triggering a condition called perseveration, which is where the brain struggles to size up the scale of a problem and then change its behaviour accordingly. It's almost like the brain gets locked into one path of action and finds it very difficult to add additional variables or parameters so that it changes its outcome. But it's very informative because it says to us, look, if we're not careful with young humans, if they take sustained exposure to alcohol as many are doing, then it could be that they are changing the way that their brain works and they're going to be cruising for a cognitive bruising later because this will lead them to maybe make bad decisions when they're older. That's very interesting. So do we think it's possible that we can really draw inferences about this, about human risky behaviour? Because, of course, risky behaviour doesn't just mean you know gambling, it doesn't just mean slot machines, things where you may or may not win more money, but it includes going in t- into dangerous places, it includes taking part in dangerous sports, and, of course, risky things like unprotected sex. Yeah, and sex aside, also doing things like other drugs, not making good decisions with your money, and thinking that if I spend this much money on this particular project, I've got a very good chance of winning when in fact maybe you haven't. And it's weighing up those pros and cons and making the right decisions that make you successful in life. Well, perhaps these people are putting themselves at risk of therefore having bad luck in future. And that's because they've been exposed to alcohol a lot when they're younger. So the, the evidence is that perhaps we should look at this and say to people, look, you know, you could be affecting the way your brain is going to work in future, so don't abuse alcohol. But it's important not to confuse this with a social drink of watered-down wine with the family at dinner on a Sunday because that kind of alcohol exposure is almost certainly not going to have this kind of effect. The animals in this study were being exposed to what would equate to quite sustained heavy drinking, the, the kind that you do see in nightclubs, but actually which you have to actually try quite hard to achieve. So, in other words... A family drink is not going to do this, but probably being exposed to high levels of alcohol chronically 
is bad and it can probably produce this behaviour in humans. And do rats have a similar adolescence to humans as well? Do they have a period where there's rapid changes in physiology and you get brain development that that then stops at the end of their adolescence? Well, they don't paint their bedrooms black. Um, (laughs) They don't turn into goths. But yes, they do seem to show very similar behavioural changes as they go through the rodent equivalent of adolescence, which is why people think they're a fairly good model for for what's happening in, in the young human brain. Well, certainly something to keep an eye on then. Now, you practically migrated to Australia um, a couple of weeks ago. Luckily, we've got you back. But also migration has been in the science news. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting, this, because if you look at animals around the world, they, they all move around. It's not just humans that move around. And there are two really interesting papers this week. One of them is a paper looking at eels. And eels are a hot topic because as well as being uh, the thing that you put into jelly deals and which many people find very, very tasty, eels are in decline. Their numbers have gone down enormously in recent years. And they're actually an animal which we know very little about. But they make a huge migration. They go 5,000 kilometres from Europe all the way across to the North Atlantic to a place called the Sargasso Sea, which is where they mate and reproduce. And if we're to try and conserve this species, we need to understand how they do that, how they make this journey and what the parameters of that journey are, because if we don't understand anything about the species, how can we save them? thing is that how do you track a a fish, an animal that's swimming underwater, sometimes a 1,000 metres underwater? Well, there's a group of researchers at the Technical University of Denmark, and this is Kim Aronstrup and her colleagues. They've got a paper in Science this week, and what they've done is to build very small satellite transceivers which they can put onto the eels they released 22 eels from the west coast of Ireland let them go, let them swim off in November 2006 and every time these eels surfaced the satellite transceiver would upload data on where the eel was, so its position and also where it had been in the water column and details about the water environment it was experiencing on its way and what they were able to do is to reconstruct some of the eels journeys up to a distance of about 1300 kilometres so they basically got a quarter of the way towards the Sarcasso Sea. So this is being very, very informative, and it's a short paper in Science which basically says this gives us some of our first insights. And the really interesting thing is that these eels, um, after they depart, they travel about 25 kilometres a day. And the researchers say, well, that's actually too slow to get where they need to go by April, which is when they need to get to the Sargasso Sea to mate. So what are they doing? Well, they think, actually, what they do is swim down to Africa and then hitch a ride on a fast-moving ocean current, which helps them to speed up and get the rest of the way much more quickly. But one other really intriguing bit of data was that the eels change their height in the water column between day and night. So during the daytime, they swim much deeper. They go down to about a 1,000 metres. And at night time, they come up close to the surface. Now, lots of animals do this because they come up at night time to warmer water to feed. But eels don't actually, on their way to the Sargasso Sea, actually eat anything. They don't feed. So why are they doing it? And what the researchers think is that the warmer water uh, up near the surface is bad news because it speeds up the eel's metabolism and it makes them uh, mature faster because they need to make sure they're reaching sexual maturity when they reach the Sargasso Sea to mate. So by swimming along most of the time at deeper water and therefore lower temperatures, they're actually slowing down their development, and this means that they're in a position to be just in the right place uh, at the right stage of development, so when they get to the Sargasso Sea, they can mate. So it's an intriguing bit of research. That's amazing. They're clearly very interesting animals. Um, and just quickly, you were caught in the dust storm. Yeah, um, obviously I was in uh, Australia because I went there to give a talk in Brisbane, uh, which is at a, at a conference, and that, which is about halfway up the east coast of 
um, Australia. And then I flew down to Adelaide, which is down in the bottom at the middle of Australia, to give a talk there and to do some interviews with some people. Then I went over to Sydney to see some friends of ours at, at the ABC, the Australian equivalent of the BBC. And I woke up on the Wednesday morning and I thought uh, I'd gone mad. Because, you know, when you first wake up, you're not sure if your brain's actually playing tricks on you. Well, I woke up and the room was orange. And I thought, nah, there's something funny about this. And I went back to sleep. And I woke up again about 10, 15 minutes later. And I thought, no, the room really is orange. And I thought the city was on fire, this funny colour that was coming into the room. And I ran to the window and I looked out and I couldn't see the end of the street. The whole street was bright orangey red and the cars were all orange. It was like a very dense fog, but bright red. And it turns out that what, what was happening is a very big storm over central Australia and the south part of Queensland, the state higher up the coast of Australia uh, above Sydney, had whipped up enormous amounts of topsoil. And the topsoil in Australia is very rich in iron oxide uh, rust. And that's why it's very red. And in fact, when measurements were made, it turns out that this storm was dumping 75,000 tonnes of dust wow. into the ocean every hour that it was blowing this 600-mile-long dust storm across Sydney. Sydney was right in the path of it, and it did clear by lunchtime on uh, Wednesday. But I've just heard from my friend Robin Williams, who presents the science show, Flags it Science Show in Australia, and he said the dust is back today, oh, no. and this time it's brown, which is <laughs> not very nice. So it's presumably come from a slightly less iron oxide-rich bit of Australia this time, but certainly a worry. They've never seen anything like this for well, more than 100 years. The photos I've seen were incredible. It must have been very surreal. It was pretty weird when normally the temperature there should be nice and high, it should be clear and sunny, and to be driving to work in that, and, and it was very unpleasant because it got into all the buildings and you'd be sitting trying to have a conversation with somebody and every time you took a breath in to, to, to sort of breathe to speak, you'd feel this sort of cloying heaviness mm. in the back of your throat because it was so dry and it was very unpleasant. Lots of people ended up going to hospital with um, respiratory problems being exacerbated by the dust. The one benefit, though, was that it actually made riding in the lift, which was air-conditioned, a lot more pleasant because it was <laughs> the one place where the air was actually OK. <laughs> well, as long as you can put up with the tinned music, which I'm sure would be awful, as it always is in lifts. Well, thank you ever so much for joining us, Chris. We will give you a few more days to recover from your jet lag, and then we'll expect you back on the show next week looking at the uh, latest advances in cancer research. So thanks for joining us. Thanks, Ben. See you soon. That was Chris Smith reporting on his own adventures in Australia, but also on this week's science news. Lifting the lab coats on the world's best science. The Naked Scientists. Still to come this week, we will try to solve the mystery of the Lindo Man. We'll find out how science can inspire fashion and we'll look at a few little tricks for geologists to use. But first, to find out more about European Researchers' Night, I spoke to Dr Paula Martin from Durham University. She has worked tirelessly for months to bring researchers revealed together. She's been organising guests, researchers and a fantastic venue for the opportunity to take research out to the public. Along with John Tickle, who is a one-time Big Brother contestant and now presenter on anarchic science TV show Brainiac, I caught her in a quiet moment between shepherding schoolchildren around and setting up the stage, and I just wanted to find out how Durham University first got involved. Researchers' Night has been happening across Europe for the past five years now, and we have a lot of people who work for Durham University who have worked in European institutions previously and have been involved in the event in other countries and came to us and said, why is this not happening in the UK? And so we went ahead and 
got involved and now it's happening here in the UK. We're the first university to be involved and we're delighted to be part of it. And you've put a European theme on the evening as well. Yep, so uh, this evening there'll be uh, cities across 30 countries in Europe all running similar sorts of events, opening their doors and uh, encouraging members of the public to come along and find out more about the research that's going on in their local area. So we've got a big group of uh, researchers from Durham University coming along to talk about the research that they do and also their personal interests and really anything that they're passionate about. And so we have people who are going to be talking about astronomy and earth sciences and archaeology and social sciences and art and music and sports and just a whole range of things. They're so excited about the chance to come out and talk to people about the stuff that they really do love doing. Our regular listeners will be familiar with Dave Ansell's Kitchen Science. He's on stage doing perhaps the slightly more dangerous stuff that you wouldn't recommend people do at home. Who else do we have lined up? So we also have uh, Helen Storey, who's a fashion designer, who's done a a variety of collaborations with scientists to develop the art and fashion that she's interested in. And then we'll be rounding off the evening with a comedy set by the punk scientists. And the glue holding the whole evening together is, in fact, John Tickle, who first rose to fame on British television on Big Brother. And then, of course, you led on to entertain and educate us through Brainiac. Edutainment, yes. Edutainment, (laughs) which is uh, it's anarchic, it's fun, but at the same time there is still definitely something to learn from it. How did you get into Brainiac? I was very, very lucky, actually. Um, I, I positioned myself on Big Brother as, uh, not intentionally, but <laughs> as how it came out as a, as a bit of a geek, uh, hopefully uh, one who is technically aware rather than socially inept. There are two different definitions in the dictionary. I, I choose the one that suits me. But the executive producer of Brainiac uh, was working up the show at the time, and bless Richard Hammond, but uh, he's not the most scientifically versed person in the world. He loves science, but he just, he's not very knowledgeable. And so there was a need to fill in the section in the script which explained the science. And so there was a, there was a sidekick role going begging. And uh, luckily Richard thought of me and uh, I got the gig and never looked back, really. And on Brainiac, they have you doing far more than just filling in the science gaps. You're explaining some of the detailed science behind the big, messy experiments. You do walking on custard as your favourite one. We'll yes. come, come back to that in a minute. Uh, but also you're looking at things that your body can do and you seem to be taking on science questions from anybody that's willing to ask them, which is a very brave thing to do. Well, this is the very nice thing about the show, that uh, very quickly we uh, achieved a a critical mass, Uh, and so we had lots of questions coming in, not only from the regular audience you might expect in, in terms of school kids and young people, but actually from all ages. And there are limits to the, the kinds of questions you can answer in a, a three-minute item on a television programme, but we, we do try and uh, address them by doing what some people can't do, which is um, getting out there and doing experiments. And, and very often they're, they're very simple ones. Uh, you know, the, the best times on Brainiac were with a tray on a street corner asking people to taste the difference between foods cooked with and without monosodium glutamate. And that's the kind of experiment you can do at home. It's just somebody had chosen to write in rather than do it themselves, but very pleased to demonstrate science in action. And it's fantastic to be able to give people the answers that they're looking for. Obviously, there are sometimes questions that we can't answer, but more importantly, there are no stupid questions. Nothing is a silly question to ask. No, this is one of my axioms. I'm I'm absolutely passionate about that. There is absolutely no such thing as a stupid question. There is a simple question for me to answer, 
but there's nothing that I will ever deride when somebody asks me a question. So there, there's no shame in asking what you might think is a, a simple question. The simplest questions are, are, are often the best ones. Uh, and that's what Brainiac tries to do. We, we, we try to answer those questions, but also explain how you might go about finding out those answers for yourself. So you're encouraging uh, a certain way of thinking. Yes. We, we don't do sci- high science as such, but what we do try and do is encourage the scientific method. Uh, and this is something that um, you know, changed my life as a, as a teenager, the, the understanding that you can ask a question and go about finding an answer in a structured, rigorous way rather than just believing anything that somebody tells you uh, is very powerful. And, and it's something I, I use at work all the time. So. And that realisation as a teenager led eventually to you walking on custard. Yes, it did. Yes, one of my, my favourite experiments on the show, and, and certainly when I uh, speak to f- people on the streets or in, in bars, then uh, that's the one that they, uh, they always uh, bring up. Uh, it was a fabulous experience, not least because I, I got to go to Richard Hammond's house. That was actually his pool that it was uh, filmed in. Uh, so he has a very nice pad out in Gloucestershire. Unfortunately, there was a downside to the day in that, that, like most Brainiac experiments, it was filmed during the dead of winter. I think this was February. So uh, I had to dive into a pool of water to start off the experiment to prove that I couldn't walk on water. And so I think we only did three takes of me jumping into a two-degree swimming pool. But they uh, didn't heat it for you? No, no. I, I, <laughs> this, this is a bone of contention with me. We, we arrived for the shoot um, on the previous night and we're in the hotel having drinks in the bar and... Mr. Hammond swore to me that he'd switched on the heating. And and I believed him before I jumped in the first time. But obviously he wasn't going to heat 27,000 litres of of water just so he could drain it five minutes later and fill it up with custard. So, yes, it was absolutely freezing. I I had hypothermia, I'm sure, afterwards. And how long did it take to mix? Oh, all day. All day. Um, The Brainiacs are are mainly quite stupid individuals. (laughs) And that's not something we make up for the show. They really have very little common sense between them. Uh, and so they hadn't brought enough custard powder with them. Uh, and so we had to send vans all around the west and southwest of England that day in order to empty. I don't know where you find warehouses full of custard powder, but they, they at least got, got it done. Uh, and so we, we had vans coming in all day, uh, filling up the swimming pool. It took most of the day to film. We usually film two or three or even four experiments a day with Brainiac, but that was an experiment that took all day to film. Fantastic. And what is coming up for you in Brainiac or indeed anything else? Well, Brainiac is uh, unfortunately dead now. Um, we um, last uh, went in, in front of the camera two years ago, uh, although you can still see repeats. I'm still doing things in the science communication arena like today, so very pleased to inv- be involved in the programme tonight. But for me at the moment, I'm, I'm trying to concentrate on my career and uh, further my uh, proper career, I always call it. <laughs> I'm a, a software designer. And this is something that most people don't know about you, that actually all of the Stuff you do in your holiday? Yes, I, 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 since Big Brother, I haven't really had a proper holiday. I actually had my gallbladder out about three months ago, and that was the first time I've had two weeks off work for six years. So <laughs> it was a very pleasurable experience for me, <laughs> despite what it might sound like. Uh, yeah, so normally I spend my 30 days holiday a year doing things like this, trying to further the aims of science communication. And I think he deserves a holiday by the sounds of it. That was John Tickle and before him Dr Paula Martin discussing Brainiac, walking on custard and the inspiration to join in with European Researchers Night. Now as Paula mentioned, the Great North Museum was open to the public throughout Researchers Night, offering a rare chance to see the museum after dark. To find out more about the museum itself, I spoke to the museum's senior manager, Steve McLean. Well, the Great North Museum is a bringing together of a number of museums in Newcastle University. 
is divided into three different sites. We're in the Great North Museum Hancock at the moment, which is where three collections have come together, the original Hancock Museum, the University's Museum of Antiquities and the Shefton Greek Museum in the university all now come together under one roof to create this spectacular new multidisciplinary museum. So in the past, the Hancock used to be mainly natural history and some Egyptology. Now it's natural history, including geology, fossils, crystals, gems. We've also got now huge collections of archaeology, Hadrian's Wall material, prehistoric collections, and of course our Egyptology and world cultures collections as well. We've just reopened about four months ago in, in May after a three-year redevelopment, which cost just over £26 million. That's a decent chunk of investment. So yeah, an awful lot of money brought together, but also we've created a new store and resource centre where all the stored collections are being held, because in this building are only the displayed collections now. So we've got a new facility where researchers can come and look at the collections, or we can take school group parties around. We've got classrooms there as well. So the collections themselves, which of course are the backbone of the, of the museum, are now um, much more accessible for visitors and researchers to use. It must be quite a challenge to tick all of the relevant boxes of natural history and Egyptology. And as you said, it's very multidisciplinary. You could probably tell from the background noise that we're near the natural history part at the moment with whale song and bird calls and so on. But how do you gel all of these fairly disparate parts together? It's a challenging process, I have to say. I mean, we obviously, throughout the process, we worked with um, architects and exhibition designers. We did a lot of research on how we wanted to interpret the collections, and we came up with a model for how we would do that. But, you know, like, like all museums, we're trying to be all things to all people, and that does present its challenges. We're also we're a university museum, but we, we're run by Tinyweer Archives and Museums, who are the largest local authority museum service in the country. And we've got a huge family audience out there, but we've also got to service the students at the, the university and other, other universities as well. So it's a challenge to try and make that all work. And we did deliberately try to set out a series of exhibitions galleries in, in the museum that complemented each other, but also operated in a number of different ways. So you've got galleries that are a little bit more contemplative, quieter, slightly more academic perhaps, um, and then you've got galleries like this gallery, which is the, the Living Planet Gallery, where it's, it's a little bit more razzmatazz, very dramatic displays, sound effects and so on, trying to create lots of different environments and feels so that all sorts of visitors can get something from the museum. That's what we're trying to achieve. Now, there's always somebody that you can't please, but we've had nearly half a million visitors in the, into this museum since we opened, and the overwhelming response has been positive. So we think, we think we've got it right, but that doesn't mean to say we won't continue to develop and improve the museum. We're here to continually do that and to challenge ourselves and try and move things forward. So it's a never-ending process to keep, you know, keep things moving on. One of the parts of the museum which should have quicker turnover than the rest, of course, is a temporary exhibition space you have towards the back of the museum, which currently, I've been told, houses a decomposing body. <laughs> yes, well, we are lucky enough to have a, a really fabulous relationship with the British Museum. And, in fact, we developed the, the main Egyptology museum, uh, display here in the museum with a long-term loan from the British Museum. So we're able to show part of the national collection here in Newcastle. We also have... The, uh, we work with the British Museum through their UK partnership scheme to bring prestigious objects up to the northeast. And, the, and we've had some fantastic exhibitions from the BM, like the Buried Treasure exhibition, 
which contained you know, um, some of the nation's most famous um, gold and silver treasures uh, and various other items. And the latest object we've got is um, Lindoman, the famous um, bog body, probably the most famous um, bog body in the country. So a very prestigious loan from the BM, and we're really pleased that we can house these sorts of objects here because we've built the facilities, working with the British Museum and so on, to make sure the facilities are appropriate for their collections. So we really do now have a very much an international exhibition venue here that allow us to bring in these top-quality objects. So hopefully the people, particularly in this region, will see the benefit of that. With such a range of things, this might be a very difficult question, but what's your personal highlight? It is a difficult question. I mean, I, you know, in, a, in a past life, I was a geologist and mineralogist um, before I became a manager. So I do have a leaning towards uh, paleontology. That's my own, my own love. And really, the objects that I'm most interested in are the famous uh, Nusham beasts, which are large crocodile-like amphibians from the Carboniferous period, which inhabited the swamps of what is now Northumberland around 300 and 20 million years ago or so and they were critical in our understanding of the evolution of tetrapods, four-footed animals and ultimately our own evolution Um, so they play a pivotal role in our understanding of vertebrate evolution and are one of four or five collections of these animals in the world. We've got some of the type specimens which are the original specimens that were used to describe the species so they're internationally significant and we've been able to put them on display because normally they're hidden away in secure stores but because we've had this redevelopment we've been able to put a lot of investment into high quality secure cases and therefore we're able to put some of this wonderful material onto display so people are now seeing the really really important material in the collection so for me that's one of the um, wonderful things to see uh, in the museum however I have to say that one of the galleries our explorer gallery which is all about collecting and collectors and classification and why we as a species have this um, um, desire to collect and classify the world around us I asked my own children to find something that they collected. So there's a drawer in there with five My Little Ponies, and they would argue they're the most important things in the collection. But there's so much, so much material, and, and it means something to different people at different levels, and everybody's got their own favourite items. Of course, of course, everybody loves the T-Rex, of course. Steve McLean, Senior Manager of the Great North Museum, explaining how the museum tries to have something for everyone, from dinosaurs to precious minerals, archaeological artefacts, and, of course, a collection of My Little Ponies. Now, the temporary exhibit that he mentioned, the Lindell Man, sounded fascinating. So Mira Senthalingam met Dr Sarah Glynn, who's another manager at the museum, to find out the history behind this amazing exhibit. Well, Lindell Man is Britain's most important and most complete bog body. He was found 25 years ago in Lindell Moss, which is in Cheshire, near Manchester. And he was found by peat cutters who were cutting the peat in the moss. Originally, he was found because one of the cutters was throwing something off the conveyor belt that they thought was just a log. turned out to be a leg. The police, the archaeologists were all brought in. And Lindemann was taken out in a full piece of peat and excavated in a lab in London. He was uh, very heavily forensically researched. And we can tell loads about his final days, his final hours, how he died. We know that he suffered three key injuries. He has a blow to the head. He has a garrote or a sinew around his neck, which may have been used as a garrote. He also has a broken neck, and he also has some potential stab wounds. That's quite a death. Yeah, quite, quite a nasty way to go. We know that the blow to the head didn't kill him because CT data shows that his brain had started to heal. His, his head had swollen and bruised, basically. So he must have been alive for enough hours for that to happen. And the work eventually showed that it was the fracture to the neck which was the fatal injury. The interesting thing about Linda Mann is that we know all of these detailed items about how he died. What we don't know is why did he die. 
Was it a ritual sacrifice? Was he executed as an example to the community? Or was he just a really unfortunate murder? So how would um, scientists go about finding that out? Well, archaeologists and the forensic scientists still study Lindoman up until the present day. At around the time that Lindoman died, there are quite a lot of bog bodies across Western Europe, and often they have suffered three deaths, as it were. So similar to, to Lindemann, three significant injuries. And even things like swords that were thrown into bogs as offering to the gods, they were sometimes killed three times. So they might be bent three ways. We, we don't know exactly what this all meant, but it was clearly something quite significant. Yeah, it's a very interesting pattern. And it's certainly, for me, the, the strongest argument for why is probably uh, a ritual sacrifice. But we can't be sure, we can never be sure, because there are no written records from the time. What we do know is that Lindo Mann was very well looked after physically. So he has manicured fingernails, he has hair that's been cut into a very fetching mullet... Um, and he was probably about 25 years old. How are you using the exhibition here then to teach people about Lindoman and what the science involved in finding out about his demise and his life is about? Well, this exhibition is all about us presenting the visitors with the evidence that we've got and asking them to make up their own minds about how he died. We've even got some cutting-edge technology which was developed by Newcastle University's Culture Lab Department, um, which is a multi-user touch table. And you can investigate in detail some of the forensic data that was collected at the time, X-rays, CT scans. You can even run simulations to see particular weapons in action so you can decide for yourself what might have killed him. And really, because we don't know, we're throwing it open to our visitors to say, here's the, here's the data, you decide. You, you make your interpretation, which is just as valid as those of, of the archaeologists and the forensic scientists. That's a nice touch to think that they could help contribute to quite a complex mystery. We really want to involve our visitors in our exhibitions, and particularly for this, where we just don't know. It's, it's a wonderful way of doing it. So if you fancy yourself to be a good amateur sleuth, you could picture those little grey cells against the mystery of the Lindo Man, who was originally found in Lindo Moss, which is where he gets his name from. That was Dr Sarah Glynn, museum manager, talking to Mira Centerlingham. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Ben Valsler. I'm bringing you the highlights from Researchers Revealed for the first time the UK has been involved with the European Researchers' Night. Now, one of the aims of Researchers' Night all across Europe is to put people in touch with researchers whose work could directly affect their lives. Nick Adoni is a very good example of this, as his research looks at ways to mitigate and avoid flooding, and in particular to protect the town of Pickering in North Yorkshire from the flooding it's so often prone to. Mira Santhalingam spoke to Nick to find out more. Pickering is at the end of a meltwater gorge that was formed probably during the last one or two ice ages. Uh, the mean flow in Pickering Beck is only a cubic metre per second or less over the year, but occasionally you get really big storms over the North York Moors and the flow increases enormously. And there is a history there for a flooding in Pickering when we get these really big thunderstorms or really big slow-moving depressions and we had a big event in June 2007 when this one metre average flow was suddenly increased to over 30 cubic metres per second and the town was quite seriously flooded. What is the first line of defence against this just to kind of barricade the town? Well you've got that spot on. Normally what would happen in this situation 
is we think in terms of hard-engineered flood defences. Now, this could mean various things. It could mean a bypass tunnel. It could mean um, making the channel deeper and wider. It could mean erecting hard concrete walls protecting the town, say, for two, two and a half feet higher than the present banks of the river, extending some distance upstream or some distance downstream or both. But there are two particular problems with these defence mechanisms. One, they're very expensive. And two, they speed the flood wave downstream. So you may protect Pickering, but you may make it a lot worse for people further down the system. What are your possible solutions to avoid this? Well, we're looking for something which might be cheaper and also more sustainable in the sense that it fits in more neatly with the natural environment. Uh, We're looking at low-impact upstream storage and structures which will slow the flow. So as we farm the landscape, remove the trees, remove vegetation to a certain extent, the water speeds up very easily into the channels and that gives you a very sharp, responsive system. So what we're trying to do is by planting trees, by planting buffer strips, by building ponds, and in this particular example we're seeing today, by building a small dam, small bunds, one or two, three metres high at most, we can stretch out the flood wave again, we can lower the peak, and that's a much more sophisticated, but we hope sustainable way of preventing flooding in the town. Now, are each of these different measures, so the planting of trees and the creating of ponds, all equally important? So do you need the combination of all of these, or are some going to make a bigger difference than others? Some will make a bigger difference than others, in theory. However, we have all the competing land uses and land management options to consider. So we have a national park, we have several triple SIs, we have multiple land users, we have the North York Moors Railway. So although a scientific exercise might say, OK, buns first, then riparian buffer strips, then ponds, we may find that for land use reasons, for the competing pressures, we can't do it that way. So therefore we have to consider all of them. Now, you have a model set up here on the laptop as part of the exhibition in order for people to just get a better insight into how these possible solutions will work. So what do we have to do here? Okay, what we've got here is a very simple bunding model. So this is just one aspect of the things that we're looking at. And the idea is that people can have a go at selecting places in the river network along Pickering Beck or the other tributaries in the catchment and saying, I'm going to try a little bund here and a little bund there and a little bund somewhere else. We can work out the storage volumes for bunds of different sizes. And by combining these, we can see how much storage can we get and therefore... Can we take off a critical amount of flow from Pickering and prevent flooding? Now, our target in this exercise is 10 cubic metres per second, 10 cumex. So we have a a flow which is theoretically 30, and we're going to try and reduce it to 20 for as long as we can. Can we get two hours protection? Can we get five? Can we get 20 hours of protection? A question that I'm not quite understanding about the whole prevention of flooding is, so you've managed to keep it away for hours. Then what? Well, we know that probably seven hours isn't likely to be enough. The extent of the flood in 2007 was more like 16 hours, and in terms of a volume of water, it was something like 400,000 cubic metres of water. We also know from our modelling here that these two structures we've put in are giving us about 180,000 cubic metres of water. So we know we need to try other things. Now, that might be more bunds, 
or it might be some of these other measures like ponds or riparian buffer strips to further slow the flow. We can also consider re-meandering the channels because by putting the meanders back into the network, the water travels more slowly and therefore again it attenuates the top of the flood wave. Finally, however, this is only an exploratory model. We must test these results rigorously using the standard engineering models that the Environment Agency use. But once they see our results, they know where to test and they know what to test. How transferable then do you think these solutions and these various methods of preventing flooding are for other towns in other geographical regions that are prone to flooding? Generically, all of these ought to help to a certain extent, but much will depend upon regional geology and land use and climate. For example, the Pickering system doesn't have much in the way of what we call groundwater flow. You might find on a chalk catchment or an area where there's a lot of limestone, we have to try different types of solution because there is so much more water coming from the ground. So it's not perfectly transferable, but the, but the idea is that you should use an exploratory model first, such as this, and then go to the more rigorous physically-based models to work out the exact solution and the exact dose. That was Nick Adoni from the University of Durham. So research can have a big impact on society, in this case by informing town planning, but it also has an enormous impact on culture. Helen Story is a fashion designer who was inspired by developmental biology to design a series of stunning and thought-provoking dresses. Mira met Helen in the Researchers Revealed Auditorium to find out about the Primitive Streak Collection. It's a collection that um, elucidates the first thousand hours of human life going from um, fertilisation through to the recognisable human form. How did you go about coming up with this concept and how did you actually research it in order to know how to then design your dresses? It was a gift from my sister, who was at the time at Oxford. She's a developmental biologist, she's now at Dundee. And she noticed a call-out that the Wellcome Trust put out to get scientists and artists together to see if they could come up with unusual bodies of work that demystified the sort of complexity of science and captured public imagination. So that's what uh, her invitation was, and she asked me to go down to Oxford to look down her microscopes. And basically what she studied was the first thousand hours of human life. And we worked with chicken embryos, because chicken embryos are almost identical in terms of development to human embryos. And I was blown away by what I saw, so I was instantly inspired and tried to allow the science or the biology, if you like, to tell me what to do, which is sort of the reverse of being a fashion designer, really. You have this sort of amazing narcissistic vision that you put out there, but this was um, very humbling. I had to do what the science told me to do. And I guess you haven't created a 1,000 dresses for each hour, so how did you go about dividing up these 1,000 hours, and what are the stages that you've shown to portray? We ended up picking 11 key events because, you're right, we couldn't do a 1,000 dresses. And I relied on Kate, really, uh, in terms of her identifying the ones that she felt were the most important narrative if, for example, you were talking to an 8-year-old. So we, we, we worked out instantly that we wanted it to be understandable and accessible for some, somebody, some short person who might not even know what biology is. But likewise, one of the things that's been quite amazing is we, one of the places we showed him was in a, a, um, a National Trust castle in Scotland. And I had three elderly women in their 90s uh, looking around the collection, and one of them began to weep. And she said, I had no idea that this is what was happening in my body all those years ago. So if you can do a body of work that manages to kind of touch an 8-year-old and a 90-year-old, you're probably onto a good thing. So what are these key stages? So we have fertilisation, 
implantation, neurulation, formation of the primitive streak. We have something called India streak. We have three different stages of heart development, limb development, and we end up with recognisable uh, spine formation and formation of the ribs. And then in cell division, for example, again, we have three dresses that look at cell division in its different phases. So it's not 11 distinct ones where there is a natural progression, like in heart development. It took three to show us that. So an event has actually just started in the auditorium. So, Helen, we've had to move outside, out into the main part of the museum, into one of the exhibits, but we've brought your dresses here with us. Now, this first one, it's beautiful. It's, it's white and it's got lots of lace all around it. And w- what is this portraying exactly? Yeah, it's part of the fertilisation group. There were three pieces actually in that Um, and this is a particular lace work that's been constructed from scratch if you like two Japanese students from the London College of Fashion have embroidered each of the sperm heads, I don't quite know if there are a thousand but they might be close to it they embroidered it onto a backing which dissolves when it's put in water Um, so it just leaves this rather beautiful lace work I guess that just shows how many sperm are needed in order to actually fertilise an egg. I mean, this is only a fraction, but um, I suppose the fact that it's actually covered in it, that it is a colossal amount of sperm that it takes to fertilise one egg. Now, so that one's very kind of pure-looking and and white. Now, the other two we've got here are very red, a scarlet red. This first one, which has a kind of a black drawing kind of essentially put into the middle so which stage is this that dress represents implantation and it's taken from a very very early biological drawing and i there's something about the handwork that i really liked so we we transferred that into an embroidery and placed that on the front of the red dress but in order to show how the embryo actually embeds into a uterus wall you know there is a boundary there of sorts three quarters of the side of it is in black chiffon so if you like the red part of the dress plugs into the black part of the dress Um, And what we've tried to show is that the outer layer of cells become placenta and the inner layer of cells will determine the body. Now, this last one, I have to admit, I think is my favourite because there's just a beautiful, lustrous piece of velvet that's just folded and curled over and runs the length of the mannequin. Is this the primitive streak? It's it's not. um, This this is actually a a phase called neurulation, um, but it's quite close to primitive streak in terms of the sequence of development, if you like. But the fold that you're talking about down the back is the neural fold, and then either side are symmetrical structures uh, amongst the first structures in the developing embryo known as somites. And all this dress uh, represents, I suppose, are, are the parts of the embryo that are destined either to become brain or eventually spinal cords and, and the spine itself. These various stages, I have to admit, they work really well. I wasn't quite sure what to expect when I thought that dresses would be showing the first thousand hours of human life. And they depict it very well, but I'm now curious, because you don't have it here with you, what does the final stage look like? What does the final dress look like? Well, the final dress, in some ways, was supposed to be slightly tongue-in-cheek. It's got a very beautiful but very obviously clear uh, spine, uh, and it's a cast of a female spine, which has been cast and and plated in um, silver foil. And then through it we run 500 fibre-optic fibres that run like very long hairs. And when they're lit up, their sparkling effect, if you like, is is supposed to be symbolic of the signalling that happens up and down the spine. And then the dress itself is a massive gown with a a six-foot train on the back, and that again is in red and black, and it shows a DNA sequence on it. So I suppose I wanted to start off with something that people were familiar with, sperms and eggs, people, if they know anything about biology, they seem to know about that bit. 
end up with something that people were familiar with. Most people know what a spine looks like. And then in between, try and elucidate the bit that is a bit more mysterious and a bit more complex. So if you like, the beginning and the full stop were, were, were quite deliberate in terms of designing the collection. So, inspired by her sister's work on developmental biology, Helen's story went on to design clothes that would, in turn, inspire others to find out more about the first 1,000 hours of our lives. Despite interruptions as John Tickle took to the microphone to announce the next live event, that was Mira Senthalingam speaking with fashion designer Helen Story. Laying the facts bare. I say. The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientists with me, Ben Valsler. We've already heard how geologists can help with protecting our property and land through flood protection, but they're also vital for finding oil, as PhD student Joe Morris explained to Mira. Basically, I study some fluvial rocks out in central Spain, which are very similar to what they're trying to drill for for oil in the North Sea. So I can go out to my field and uh, try and map them, log them, capture the different characteristics about it and then I come back to the UK and have meetings with the companies that are sponsoring my PhD and sort of let them know what's going on out there helps them give them a really good idea what's going on in their reservoirs because if you think about it when they drill they only get a 10 centimetre core and from that 10 centimetre core they've got to predict what's going on in a reservoir that's say 5 kilometres wide Now why does looking into the rocks you're looking into in central Spain help them understand the ones in the North Shore. So why are they similar and how can analysing this help them predict the right areas to dig? Okay, so that's a really good question. My rocks out in Spain are really good analogies for the North Sea because they're deposited at the same time. So if there's any climatic effects on the deposition of those rocks, the climatic changes would have been occurring at the same time for both the rocks deposited in the North Sea and the rocks deposited in Spain. We're also in a similar tectonic basin, so we're rifting, active rifting basin, and all these sediments are being deposited within these basins. How does understanding the rock then help people know where to dig? So what do you need to know about a rock in order to know if there's going to be oil underneath it? Basically, the simple equation for finding oil in the North Sea and the reservoirs is you need to find sand. That's where the oil is going to be. So about 30, 40 years ago, when they started drilling there, it was quite easy for them because it was all, the reservoirs were all sand. So is oil just always under sand everywhere? Uh, no, it's not always in sand. It's in, you can get it in limestones as well and things like that, just primarily the reservoirs that I know about in the North Sea and uh, the reservoirs that they've been trying to drill into. And sorry, I did interrupt you there. So, um, so primarily they need to look for sand. What then? In the case of my research, they need to look for sand <laughs> before I get shouted at by all the other geologists looking for oil in other reservoirs. But, um, yeah, so if you think about the, a river on a floodplain in a modern-day setting, the river flowing through the system is where the sand's going to be deposited. But you've also got a floodplain that that river's flowing in through, which is where the muds are, and that's not where you're going to find oil. So over time, that river will evolve over the floodplain and stack up and build. So that sand is shifting throughout the system over time. And that's what my rocks have been doing in Spain, and I'm trying to map and figure out. And by doing that, we can then go back and look at the reservoirs in the North Sea and hopefully try and predict where that sand is much better. So by finding where the sand is in the central Spain rocks, 
that can help them create essentially a type of map of the North Shore rocks and then know which is the correct part to dig in. Yeah, so what the, the people working in the oil industry will do is probably drill a, a couple of cores within their reservoir and from that 10 centimetre core then try and build up a model, a 3D model of that reservoir. And the, the reservoirs can vary in size, but usually they're sort of 5 to 10 kilometres squared and, and also a vertical distance as well to create the volume, of course. So what we try and do is we take what we found in Spain and put that information into the 3D models. And we in the 3D models, we have rivers flowing through and we have the mud plains in there as well. And it's all about trying to predict the volume of sand and therefore the volume of oil coming out as well. So how's it gone so far? Have, you actually, have they been able to find some oil in the right places yet? Yeah, so I'm actually only towards the end of the first year of my PhD. So I have been had a couple of meetings with the, the people that I work with in the industry and trying to hand over the information. It'll be, I've been out on field work and collecting my data, so I'll actually be analysing that over the next year. And how beneficial, then, is knowing this for the oil industry? So, I mean, obviously they have to wait for this data, so that's losing them money. But then at the same time, it's going to help them not waste money in digging in the wrong places. So how, how would you and them combine to balance that out it is just a mixture of like sort of trying to drill for oil in the short period of time and so the, obviously the industry is based on an economic it's all about money basically an economic potential they obviously do have to wait for my data but at the same time they've got other experts in the industry they have other people working on things like this as well and they're always getting the information fed through and they just whenever they have to make a decision whenever it's time to drill they just use the data that they have at that point what about the option of not less telling them anywhere to dig and that, they, that way they can't and then we can solve the whole oil fuel issue? A lot of people, I, a lot of people do ask me this sort of question. They, they do wonder, you know, why are you working in the oil industry and things like that? And you just sort of point out to them that everything is based on the oil industry. If it, the chair they're sitting on, if it's made from plastic, is based on the oil industry. The cars they drive to the supermarket, the food that they eat and well, buy and eat from the supermarket, all is produced from the oil industry. So it's not as simple as completely shutting off because it means we'll be going back to the Iron Ages and driving around on horse and cart and things like that. So it's, it's a finding a new ways of creating energy and, the, and lowering the amount that we use of the oil industry, but it will, it will never go away. So despite the temptation, we're still so totally reliant on oil that geologists just can't keep quiet about where to find it. And studying rocks in one area can tell us a great deal about how to find oil in another. That was Durham University PhD student Joe Morris. And finally for today, Mira caught up with John Milton and Dan Carter-Hope to find out just what it takes to be a punk scientist. Well, basically what we want to do is to try to get everyone interested in science. So not just sort of preaching to the converted. We, no. want, we want to engage everyone. Well, we don't really simplify our science. We just make our shows very accessible. They're funny, they're silly, yeah. they're yeah. stupid. I Maybe guess. a bit purer. Yeah, it's the opposite of the stereotypical science show or lecture. We've gone to the opposite extreme, and it's sort of elements of pantomime, it's knockout, and uh, being in a pub. Well, because that's what, uh, what I was going to ask you, because there are so many different groups now trying to make science more accessible yeah. and the whole field of science communication. Yeah. But 
what do you do that's different? Because your, your slogan is that you're aimed at adults purely as your main kind of audience. Well, yes, originally, but we've also expanded to include, uh, I think I can safely say everyone, having yeah. done kids' shows, uh, teenage shows, adult shows, and family shows. So really, we've turned into sort of the SWAT team of science communication. But our, ma- our main focus is, is adults. So, I mean, yeah. we do a regular gig well, every month at the uh, Science Museum in London's the late, open, late, the late yeah. uh, where we do a different show every month, uh, depending on the theme of the night. So the next For example, one, there's, there's been Formula One, we've had uh, women in science, there's been what else, space, what else we do? Um, climate well, change. Well, climate change is the next one. Yeah. That's fact. your next one. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what aspects of climate change are you looking at there? Also, uh, the mechanism, how it's going to affect our lives, crazy weather. I have a bit of a skewed look at it as well because yes. um, we try and look at local food and local produce mm-hmm. because to break down, uh, to, to bring down your carbon footprint, you should try and eat your local produce and all that sort of thing. And so, do you? Uh, yeah, yeah, I do yeah, actually. I go okay. to my local supermarket. <laughs> no, oh, no, that's not the no. point, man. Do you read where it's from? Yes, and I go, where's that? Don't yeah, know. that it's sounds okay, fun. Then. I'll eat that. No, <laughs> no, uh, yeah, I do, I do, to the most part. I think practically, I don't think as many people as need to no. do it because of price, especially in the economic climate. Can I say that without sounding dull? Nope. Our skewed look at that is that um, as a result of the temperatures going up, year on year, insects have been getting slightly larger. Mm-hmm. So our proposal is, why not eat insects? Yeah. So we okay. get some insects, Easy and that this is where we're shown to be hypocrites because... We, you can only get edible insects that do come from... They're not locally sourced. No, no. <laughs> no local, local to Cambodia. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, the tarantula so is from, uh, from nice. Cambodia. We're making yep. an important science point. It's not just about uh, bullying people into eating insects in a live environment. But it's, you know, it's trying to you know, get people to think in a slightly different way. Yeah. Well, you, you also reach new audiences because I've seen that you've also performed at the Edinburgh Fringe and places like that. Yes, so yeah, how two years ago. That went down really well, actually. Yeah, very well. Yeah, we, yeah, we, the first time I we went there was Einstein year, so we may have had some help with the publicity. Yeah, because we did a show about Newton. Yeah. What? No, we missed the trick oh, there. Oh, next no, we did, we did a show about Einstein, obviously. Yeah. It went really well. It was a great experience, and that's the sort of ideal audience for us, really, you know, sort of festival-going crowd who are willing to try something a little bit unusual. So how would you summarise, then, the main ways you try and engage your audience and get them kind of it's, passionate about science? It's through... Big interactive demonstrations of things. Yeah. So lots of people have to get involved, and there may be a degree of humiliation, yeah. uh, for either for us or for them, depending it's all on how it works out. Audience participation. Yeah. We don't voting that sort of thing. Because I suppose most science communicators they just do experiments, yeah. which is great because they look brilliant and uh, get a really good reaction. You want interaction. But we actually interact with people. I suppose that's because we do adult audiences. So it's nice to do uh, experiments because you get a bit of wow factor. But we found uh, it wasn't enough and people found... uh, Adults tended to find they were being a a bit patronised because most of the established experiments are targeted at children and that, that wasn't our target audience. So we changed. So we took... We started to take sort of more theoretical things and yeah. tried to make them into 
live things. Yeah, for example, sometimes it works really well. Yeah, Brownie in Motion, we turned into a live demo yeah. uh, using the audience to be uh, oh, the, okay, the nice. molecules and yeah. beach balls. We're chucking be beach balls at them and then more and more beach balls. So we try and put in this sort of it's a knockout element of escalation. And would you say they understand the kind of the science well, behind it? A lot of people we've... surprisingly do, yes, people who aren't, aren't necessarily into it because we've. we've so the that lady came up to us. Uh, ringing endorsements. Oh, yeah, yes. yeah, who came up uh, at one of our Edinburgh shows, said she's been married to, to a, a physicist. physicist. For 20 years, it's awful. Uh, <laughs> but I don't, now she's no. going to understand his work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for the first time, she actually understood what Brownian motion meant. So, and uh, so explain to our audience, good. what is Brownian motion? No. <laughs> it's the random movement of a particle suspended in a liquid. Yeah. And is there an, it has to be said in that voice. It does, right? it does, yeah. yeah. And, um, and it proved the existence of the atom, didn't it? It helped to prove the existence. Yeah, it did. It led to it led to proving. So we do we do little footnotes. Of... But your backgrounds, both of yours, aren't science backgrounds. No. So what made you get involved no. with making science exciting we, for other people? We worked as explainers at the Science Museum's Launchpad Gallery. So yeah, the whole and, and all began there. They yes. recruit a lot of people for that job. They recruit a lot of people with science backgrounds. They recruit about a similar amount of people with performing music, comedy, drama backgrounds. Yeah, and okay. then lastly, um, I guess the question you must get all the time, because we always get asked if we're naked because we're the naked scientists, right. so are you indeed punks or have you ever been punks? No, no, no. no. But at least you can say we are scientists. We can't even say that. Say, no, I know, but I have genuine interest in science. Yeah. But our, our, one of our former taglines, tried and tested, was that if, if we, talk, we make things simple enough that if we can understand it, anyone can. Punk scientist Dan Carter Hope and before him fellow punk John Milton talking to Mira Senthalingam. That's all we have time for this week, so many thanks to everyone who joined us at the Great North Museum on Friday for Researchers' Night. Thanks also to our production team, Diana O'Carroll, Mira Senthalingam, Dave Ansell and Tom Simpkins. And finally, thanks to all of you at home for listening. Next week, we're catching up with the latest in cancer research. Dr Cat will be at the National Cancer Research Institute's annual conference in Birmingham. But also this week, the Podcast Award nominations are open. So, if you happen to have a podcast that you're perhaps listening to right now and really enjoy and think it's worth an award then you can nominate at podcastawards.com in the meantime if you have any questions or comments you can write to us on chris at thenakedscientists.com we would love to hear from you as always there's loads more interesting science content on our website at thenakedscientist.com so have a great week and goodbye the Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.